It is my great pleasure to start our Fall 2020 sermon series on 2 Corinthians today. Why 2 Corinthians? First off, every fall we study letters of the New Testament, and last fall we study 1 Corinthians. Thus, studying 2 Corinthians is chronologically correct, but it also makes a circumstantially great sense, since 2 Corinthians is known for it's an encouragement for hard times. That's why I entitled the series, High Truth in High Times. High Truth in High Times. Definitely, we are living in a hard time. Many call this pandemic as a 21st century version of a Great Depression. I think that's an understatement. This is a Great Depression uh, coupled with a Great War. We don't see the bombs exploding around us, but let me tell you, we are in a great war against the virus against, that threatens everybody's life. We are more global than ever before. I think this uh, COVID-19 virus makes our experience of life more unique and global than ever before. So we are in a very hard time. And this letter of Paul, really provide a lot of uh, encouragement. Matter of fact, I meditate on the Second Corinthians uh, three times in my life, in my, uh, my, my devotions, and each time it was when I was going through a hard time. Because this letter reveals uh, Paul's raw emotions more than any of his uh, 13 letters. And here, Second Corinthians, Paul shows us how we can overcome insurmountable crises and sufferings by God's grace and truth. Among all the churches Paul planted and pastored, Corinthian church was the most difficult church from the beginning. In fact, Paul wrote four letters, but the first and the third letter, especially the third letter known as a letter of pain, are missing and 2 Corinthians is actually the last letter. Now, what do you remember about the city of Corinth when we studied last year? Those of you new and then those of you forgot, I want you to remember two things about the Corinth. That is, it is a filthy rich church. It is a filthy rich church or rich filthy church. In antiquity, Corinth was a major city in Greece, only rivaled by Athens and Sparta. In 400, uh, 146 BC, 200 years roughly before uh, Paul came to the city, Romans invaded Greece and they burned down Corinth. But 100 years later, in BC 46, Julius Caesar rebuilt the city, made it a Roman colony, with the capital of the province of Achaia, because of Corinth has a, such a strategic location for commerce and military. So let me show you the map. If you look at the map, you will see it is located in the narrow land bridge between the Greek peninsula and the Peloponnesian peninsula. And the ship that traveled from Italy and Spain to Greece and Asia Minor had to stop by Corinth because it has a two port. Do you see that two port Corinth? And there's a Gulf of Corinth and the Saronic Gulf. 
in, and Corinth is located right there, and it has uh, two ports. And uh, usually, merchants sailed into the Corinthian Gulf and unloaded their cargo and transported on land to seaport four miles down. So if you let me show you the, the picture of that uh, uh, bridge. Yes, that's about four miles. And that four miles uh, land transport saves 240 miles of a rough sailing in open ocean, especially during the winter time when Mediterranean Sea was known for its danger. In contrast, the Corinthian Gulf was much calmer and safer. So as a result of being a transportation hub and commerce center, Corinth was known for its wealth. Some scholars, now you can look at me, some scholars estimate that its wealth was second to Rome. For a second century record shows that Corinth has 460,000 slaves. They needed almost a half million slaves to transport cargoes to operate the two seaport. As a result, it became a very wealthy city. As a affluent city, Corinth attracted many people all, all over from the world, not only Greeks and Romans, but also Jews and Egyptians and Persians and every, everyone else in the Roman Empire. That means many temples of different gods, among them, uh, a temple of Aphrodite, a goddess of love, was most known for its mega size and thousands of temple prostitutes. Corinth was known for also its luxurious lifestyle that even today we call the fancy column what? Corinthian column for its aesthetic beauty. And archaeologists discovered the large villas by the sea cliff which could house hundreds of people comfortably. And Corinthians, they love to party all night with all kinds of pleasures that Greek writers coined the term Corinthianize. Corinthianize means ultimate hedonistic feast. And the Corinthians, they had a biannual sporting event called the Ithmian Games, which brought many competitors and the spectators all over and was a rival only to Olympian Games. So, prosperity and pleasure characterize this city of Corinth, rich, filthy city. In this uh, bustling Roman poor city of a cosmopolitan character and brash manner, a Jewish rabbi and Christian missionary, Paul came around AD 50. A New Testament scholar said, Whereas Caesar recolonized this strategic city with a commerce, Christ redeemed the sinful city with a gospel. Now let's read how Paul studied a Corinthian church in Acts chapter 18, verse 6. Acts chapter 18, verse 6. But when they, they means the Jews in Corinth, opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook off his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood will be on your own head. I'm innocent of it. Now, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogues and went next door to the house of a Titus Justus, or Eustace, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader and his entire household, believed in the Lord 
and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One important thing to notice about Corinthian church was where was the location of the first house church of Corinth. If you look at the verse in the 7, Paul left the synagogue and went to the next door to the house of Eustace, the worshiper of God. That means the church was located right next to synagogue. So can you imagine there were two worship places next to each other and they both claimed to believe in the true God of Israel. Every week, two congregations saw each other as they entered into their house of worship. I bet there was a great deal of spiritual competition. You can probably almost hear in imagination, they tried to outsing the other church in their praising time. At the first, also, one of the first converts of a Corinthian church was an ex synagogue leader named Crispus. That means their former pastor became a follower or a member of this new church. So, can you imagine the tense atmosphere? And then, Bible said in verse 8 that Paul preached the gospel and many Corinthians believed and were baptized. Pauline scholars think that Corinthian church was the most successful ministry of Paul in terms of a number. Because the writer of the book of Acts, Luke, was a very careful writer that he did not use the word many carelessly. The only time he used the many to church was when he described the barians. You know, many Bereans believe Paul's you know, gospel. Corinth was much bigger than Berea. So New Testament scholars estimate the actual number of a Corinthian church at the time was 150 to 200 people, composed of several house churches. Now let me finish the reading. Verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of, the word of God. Paul was scared to stay and serve, preach and serve the church, because there are many threats. And God, Jesus has to come to him in vision and tell him, give him special personal assurance and command. As a result, Paul had not only a large ministry, but long ministry at Corinth. He stayed there for a year and a half. And by the way, doesn't Jesus' word comfort you? Jesus told Paul that I have many people to save in this church. While others mock Corinthians as a promiscuous sinners, Jesus loved the Corinthians the sinners, as his precious saints and people. This word of Jesus confirms that our God is a God of prodigal sons and daughters. Now, in our study of a second Corinthian series, I selected 10 well-known and important passages. And I want us to meditate on this high truth of God as we overcome our hard times. The reason I'm doing a selective study instead of a comprehensive study on this episode is because we already finished the verse-by-verse study in 2 Corinthians in our daily devotional called the Daily Breath. 
So I'm just uh, highlighting the 10 important passages that we should know. Today, the first high truth is about comfort. And uh, about the comfort of God or biblical comfort, I want us to know two things about uh, comfort. One is a definition. The other one is a direction. So we're going to look at the definition and direction of a comfort. So let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 to 7 first. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comfort us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the suffering of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If, you are comforted, if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which produces a new patient endurance of the same suffering we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, that we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you share in our comfort. The key word in today's passage, as well as 2 Corinthians, is a comfort. Comfort appears nine times in these five introductory verses today. And also, the word comfort appears 29 times in the entire letter. Comfort. That's the, one of the key themes of this letter. Now, comfort, that's all we need from time to time, especially in this pandemic. Where do you find the comfort during this crisis? Good number of people find the comfort in food. In Paul, about 1,012 uh, people, the U.S. WebMD readers, uh, says that 70, uh, according to the poll, 47% of women and 22% of men responded they have gained weight due to COVID restrictions. Most said their weight gain was uh, uh, relatively small, it's, uh, between 1 and 9 pounds. And mental health professional say that pandemic weight gain is actually not bad at all. Fatty, sugar-laden food slow the production of a certain stress hormones so we can calm down. And uh, there is some psychology behind it too. Men typically turn to a health, uh, heartier food such as uh, meaty dishes, pasta, mashed potato, or stew because uh, those are the food their mothers used to make for them. And women, on the other hand, tend to avoid the labor-intensive food when times get tough and up, they opt for the snacks. So if a food doesn't work, how about drink? Some people drink much. I've been drinking a lot of coffee. Actually, I start my day with a Korean bakery and coffee. That's how I start the day. And some people go to for hard stuff. And we don't call it sudden comfort for nothing. I hope you don't abuse that sudden comfort. What is exactly comfort? We tend to think of our comfort as something that makes us feel better. 
like our favorite food, or shoulder to cry on, or someone telling us that everything is going to be okay. Comfort is a soothing. It eases our pain, relieves our distresses. That's why there is a hotel chain named, named itself Comfort Inn. When we call something comforting, we usually mean it makes us feel better. Now, listen to me. That's not what Paul had in mind. The word comfort in the Bible has a more to do with the strengthening than soothing. Let me repeat that. The word comfort in the Bible or biblical comfort is a much more about strengthening than soothing. It doesn't just relieve our pain, it stiffens our resolve. The English word comfort comes from the Latin root fortis, which means strength. It shows up in the words like a forte, fortress, fortitude. Comfort, according to the Bible, isn't just about feeling better. It's about feeling stronger, feeling stronger. Let me quote a, 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 a New Testament scholar that I, re, that I know and I actually respect highly. So David Garland, a former dean of a, a, a Truett Seminary at Baylor University, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, he said this, Comfort that Paul has in mind has nothing to do with a languorous feeling of a contentment. It is not something tranquilizing those of a grace that only dulls pains, but stiffening agent that fortifies one in heart, mind, and soul. Comfort related to encouragement, help, and exhortation. God's comfort strengthens weak knees, sustains the sagging spirits, so that one faces troubles of a life with an unbending resolve and unending assurance. Don't you love that last sentence? The comfort of God makes us strong enough that we can overcome troubles of life with an unbending resolve and unending assurance in God's love and power for us. Amen. Now, isn't that what really we need when bad things happen? Have you seen someone's knee buckle when they received the bad news? Have you ever heard someone say they were so sad that they can get even get out of the bed? We all need the strength. And comfort of God gives us the strength because God's comfort comes, uh, came from His Son who was crucified for us. You know, Greek word for comfort, comfort is a paraklesis. Paraklesis is a compound word. Let me show you the paraklesis is a para plus a kaleo or klete. Para is alongside and kaleo is to, it means to call. So paraklesis is someone calling next to you. That's why, so comfort does not mean, you know, comfort means that, uh, you know, someone calling next to you. That's where comfort comes from. Our comfort, according to Paul, does not come from things. Ultimate comfort, lasting comfort, real comfort comes from a person who is close to us. Someone who is close to us. And that's why Son of God took the human flesh to be close to us and to comfort us. God gives us a comfort because He's a comforter. Our God is a God of compassion. 
And some of you who, are, who knows this word paraclesis, it first appeared in the John chapter 14 when Jesus talked about the Comforter, the coming promise of the Holy Spirit as our Comforter. I read a story in a book about friendship that showed me how one can help uh, another to be a strong with a comfort. So let me read that story. It's a, there are, uh, the, oh, that's not the quote. Okay, then let, me, let me read the story. There are a handful of people during our lifetime, your lifetime, who knows, who know you well enough to understand when the right thing to say is to say nothing at all. Those people, uh, only very few of them, will be with you during your very worst time. When my wife died, I was so numb that I felt dead myself. In the hours after death, as my children and I tried in vain to figure out what to do next, how to get from hour to hour, phone must have been ringing, but I have no recollection of it. The next morning, one of those mornings when you awaken, blink to start the day, and then a dispiriting second later, realize anew what has just happened and feel the boulder press you against the earth with a such weight that you fear that you will never be able to get up. The phone rang. It was Jack. I didn't want to hear any voice, even his voice. I just wanted to cover myself with darkness. I knew he would be asking if there was anything he could do. But I should have known that he had already done it. I'm in Chicago, Jack said. I misunderstood him. I thought he was offering to come to Chicago. Jack said, I took the first flight this morning. He had heard. He had flown it. I know that you probably don't want to see anyone, he said. That's all right. I just check into the hotel, and I will just sit in the room in case you need me to do something. I can do whatever you want, or I can do nothing. He meant it. He knew the best thing he could do was to be present in the same time, to tell me that he was there. He did not just sit there. I assume he watched TV or did some work, but he waited until I gathered strength to say I needed him. He helped me with the things that no man ever wants to need help with. Mostly he sat with me and knew I did not require conversation. Did not welcome chatter. Did not need anything beyond the knowledge that he was there. He brought food for my children and by sharing my silence, he got me through those days. End of the story. This story illustrates how comforter comfort us. They comfort us with their presence more than their preachings. Karen War Kay Warren, wife of a famous pastor, Rick Warren, the pastor of a Saturday Community Church or author of A Purpose Driven Life, lost their 27-year-old son, Matthew, after battling Lifelong depression, he finally ended his life. And then she said, the K. Warren said the best comfort was not to was not encourage people encouraging her to move on. But best comfort she received from people was that take your time. I'm here with you. Take your time. I'm here with you. 
The comforter is someone who sits with you and shares your silence. How do we do? Now, the question is how we do in this physical distance pandemic. You know, I think this is time when the email, texting, writing a card or letter really matters and more effective. Just to let them know that they are in our hearts and you are praying for them. On this note, I want to express my thanksgiving to everyone who faithfully shows up uh, house churches and our Sunday worship service and also those who are coming faithfully in the daily breath, our morning devotions. Your faithful presence and committed attendance makes me strong. It actually comforts me. You make me not only accountable to God as a pastor in this pandemic, but also very grateful and appreciative of a gospel and God's word to serve you. Now, let me go to the second point, the direction of comfort. Biblical comfort is not only strong, but also sharing and serving. The other important lesson that we learned from Paul today is that the biblical comfort, direction of comfort is not only from God to us, but also from us to others. Look at the verse three, uh, uh, verse 3 and 4. Praise be to the God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comfort us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Paul said, biblical comfort is not only strong, but also sharing. God comforts us so that we can comfort others. Here, I want us to notice an important fact about Paul's comforting. Whom was Paul trying to comfort here? Obviously, Paul was trying to comfort Corinthian Christians. Now, what kind of people were Corinthian Christians to Paul? Good or bad or ugly? You know, Corinthian Christians, they were both bad and ugly. I already told you that Paul had a hard time with the Corinthians. Most Paul's letters to his churches start with the Thanksgiving letters, Thanksgiving words at the beginning, except the two letters, Galatians and 2 Corinthians. Galatians, Paul skipped and get to the point because they, are quick, they quickly abandoned the truth of the gospel. So Paul was angry from the beginning. Corinthians, Paul also skipped the thanksgiving, customary thanksgiving, because of their consistent nagging disrespect of Paul's authority as their pastor and apostle of Christ. Even in the first Corinthian, Paul started with the customary thanksgiving, but in second Corinthian, there was not even customary thanksgiving. So you can tell the relationship is real difficult and then, you know, actually sour, you know, it's a sour. So instead, Paul begins with a praises to God. So if you look at if a verse 3, Paul said, Praise be to God, uh, praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and God of all comfort. Instead of thanking Corinthians, Paul was praising God. Why? Here, we see Paul's great spiritual pastoral wisdom. When you have a difficult people and there is not much for you to thank God for them, you praise God first. You praise God first. Because when we focus on God's goodness and greatness, you know what? 
God said, goodness will create the trust in Him. Because He's the one who began this relationship, even with the difficult people, and He will carry us through this relationship. God who begins will always finish in glory. Amen? So when you, when you cannot thank them, that's okay. Praise God for them. Even difficult people, and God will give you comfort to strengthen you. Now, what was Paul's you know, circumstance or situation at the time? Look at the verse 8 to 11. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles that we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressures, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death. But this happened that we might not uh, rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has uh, delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us again. On Him, we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us. As you help us by your prayers, that many will give thanks on your behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to prayers of, of many. Now, Paul was uh, having a hard time in province of Asia, that means uh, Ephesus in the surrounding area. And New Testament scholars, they're not sure when Paul, what Paul exactly meant by in verse 9, when he said, we felt that we received the sentence of death. What is this sentence of death that Paul experienced? Some think that uh, Paul was refer uh, referring to Ephesians riot in Acts chapter 19. Some think that Paul was talking about is a, a, a physical uh, illness. Some think, some, some ref some think that it was, Paul was talking about some unreported imprisonment. No one is for sure. While Paul did not explain detail, Paul left a keynote to hear. He said, we felt the sentence of death. He used the word, we felt. Somehow, Paul must have experienced such a huge spiritual setback and emotional letdown that he compared his uh, circumstance like a death sentence, almost death, and his comeback as the God's miracle of a resurrection. He said, we cannot rely on ourselves. Only God resurrected us. That's why I'm, now I'm here and writing this. You know, when you go through a difficult time, what do you do? with other people. We usually just shut down. It is our tendency to cover ourselves with a blanket and wallow in our sorrows and feast on our self-pity. Guess what Paul was doing? Even this a difficult situation, he was writing a letter to explain why he was late in his promise to visit the Corinthians again. And the rest of chapter 1, Paul was explaining you know, what was his intention and why it was delayed and his delay is not necessarily his, you know, breaking the promise. You know, so he said that he was, he was explaining, he was very apologetically in the long, you know, long sentences and the long, you know, many, many words. And if you look at the verse 12, Paul said, Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, especially in our relationship with you, with the integrity and godly sincerity. Look at me. 
When you start talking to somebody about your conscience and integrity and sincerity, it usually means you are having an important and difficult conversation with somebody who is doubting your intentions and motive. You know, I usually don't put sincerely or truthfully at the end of my email. I usually put the Christian euphemism in Christ, in his love, with Christ's affection, those kind of things. But when I'm talking to someone, when I'm emailing somebody's serious matter, or especially very difficult, you know, uh, relational stuff, I always say sincerely or truthfully. So those of you who received my email with those ending, now you know well, how I'm feeling about the situation. Now, Paul talks about conscience, another key word in the New Testament, and especially in the Second Corinthians. Paul used it 20 times in entire his letters, and 11 times his letter to Corinthians. Paul has to plead with the Corinthians that intention is good and sincere and clean. And Paul simply had a hard time with these people. And then later, if you look at the verse uh, 13 to 15, Paul expressed his original uh, uh, plan. Paul said, we do not write, uh, let me just skip to the verse 15. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from the Macedonia. And then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Okay, we'll explain about Paul's trip to Judea later. But most challenging part of today's Paul's passage, message or letter is that Paul wanted to visit this complaining, ungrateful Corinthians not once, but twice. According to Pauline scholars, Paul already been to Corinth twice. And first time he was there for a year and a half. And now he tried to visit them again and again. Do you like to visit people who are ungrateful to your serving and constantly cast doubt on your motive? Paul comforted those who are not just weak, but those who are almost wicked and definitely unworthy. Here, we must learn important biblical truths about love. That is, love is not self-fulfillment, but a self-sacrificial. So is the comforting. Comforting is not for self-fulfillment, but it is a self-sacrificial. Let me, let me, let me quote a, a very thoughtful pastor's word. Now you can put that on. First, we must understand all of the world's deceptions flow from the belief that love is primarily for the fulfillment and the comfort of self. Let me repeat that. First, we must understand that all of the world's deceptions, problem in this world, in our life, flows from the belief that love is primarily for the fulfillment and comfort of self. World poison love by focusing first and foremost on meeting one's needs. Christ taught that love is not for the fulfillment of self, but for the glory of God and the food of others. True love is selfless. It gives. It sacrifices. It dies to its own needs. Amen. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 
in his book, A Life Together, he also says the similar thing. He says, human love is attracted to other person for his own sake. But spiritual love loves the other for Christ's sake. Human love seeks a direct contact with the other person. It loves the other person, not as a free person, but the one to bind itself. It wants to gain, capture the other person by every means. So human love is a possessive. We just as love a selective few that we like, and we love them to fill our need. Whereas a Christ love is to love everyone who has a need. We all love and comfort others in life. And the love and comfort that glorifies God, dear brothers and sisters, that we need to remember today from Paul's word is this, that we extend to those people in need. What qualifies our comfort and help for them is not they are in our heart, but they are in simply their need. It is their dire situation, not their dear relationship to us, that make us reach out to them. Tim Keller, in his book, Generous Justice, said this, by depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, we're talking about parable Samaritan, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say anyone at all in need, regardless of a race, politics, class, and religion, is our neighbor. Not everyone is your brother or sister in faith, but everyone is your neighbor, and we must love our neighbor. Our dear brothers and sisters, I want to tell you this. Christian love is not a self-fulfilling. That's a worldly love. Christian love is self-sacrificing. Now, many of, many of us, when you hear a statement like this, first thing that crossed your mind was, then what's the good about you know, loving? Or biblical love or comfort? Let me tell you clearly today. First part of a biblical love and comfort is that we empty ourselves for others. And when we empty ourselves for others, God fills us with His love. For that, we need a Corinthians. The way to empty our self-fulfilling, self-centered love, we need a Corinthians. Most of us like to have a people like a Philippians that Paul had. Do you remember Philippians? Letters of Paul, letter of joy, Philippians who supported Paul from the beginning to the end. We all gravitate toward the Philippians. But guess what? God called us to love Corinthians. Who are the Corinthians? They don't show their gratitude much. But whenever, you know, they find something that we did wrong, then they just jump on you. Just a little mistake, they jump on you. They are Corinthians. And anytime they find some, you know, 
They don't give you benefit of doubt. Actually, they give you full bag of doubt. They're the Corinthians. They don't express gratitude. They are good at expressing grievances. Sometimes our children are Corinthians. Sometimes I cannot say who is a Corinthian anymore. But you know what? Look at Paul's letter. Paul wrote two long letters to Corinthians. And God blessed us so much through Paul's Corinthian letters. Philippian letter is very short. It's a, it's a wonderful too. It's definitely a great letter. But God blesses us letters and testimonies like 2 Corinthians. I really pray for us and each house church and every one of us, we welcome not just Philippians, but Corinthians. So who is a Corinthians God called you to love in this, this week or today or this pandemic? Let's pray.